morning. Welcome to Creekside Church. It's great to see everyone here today. Let's go ahead, come on in, find a seat. There's plenty of good spots. Let's go ahead and stand as we uh, sing this next song together. Let's stand and I will just commit our time uh, to the Lord this morning. Uh, Father God, we just thank you for the opportunity to gather in the name of Jesus Christ, the name that every knee will bow and one day every knee will confess that you are Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father, we pray that as we come this morning that you would prepare our hearts, uh, help us to forget uh, the distractions of our uh, lives, the things that draw us away from you. Help us to turn our eyes on Jesus Christ alone. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for uh, joining us this morning. We're glad that you're here to worship with us this morning. I just want to say welcome to you if you're here as a guest and you're here for the very first time. If you did receive a bulletin, there is a little flap on the bulletin if you'd fold that over, tear it off, fill it out, and then at the end of the service when you leave on the table, the welcome table out there, there is a box where we take our offering. If you just put that in there, we'd sure appreciate it. I uh, have only one other announcement that I'm going to call your attention to, and that is that there is uh, in the bulletin, but there's upcoming a Freedom for Youth Banquet, which is a local ministry we're going to highlight next week. Uh, one of our own uh, members, Bob Short, is heavily involved in that, employed on staff with Freedom for Youth, and they're having a banquet. The church has, uh, they have a fundraiser, so our church has purchased a table, okay? So you can sign up to be a part and sit at that table if you would be so inclined, and then you'll get a, a pitch for support. I mean, the whole purpose of the fundraiser is to raise funds, but our church paid for the table, which basically just covers the cost of your meal and the expenses for holding it. And so if you'd like to sign up, some have already signed up independently, and if you want to sign up to sit at the table with uh, some of our folks, that'd be great. Contact Megan at uh, megan at creeksidebm.com to do that. It's a privilege right now for me. I'm going to ask Norton Karen. I'll just meet you right down here. I'm going to, whoa, what happened to your mic? Oh, you got it over there. Okay, you did it. Switched it on me. Okay, so uh, I wanted to ask, uh, you can just stay right there, Norton Karen. Why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, what's going to happen here in a few weeks. The, you have an insert in your bulletin about the Haiti team with a picture of the Haiti team. Why don't you just tell us about what ministry opportunities the team has when they go to Haiti? So um, it's hard to believe that after eight, planning for a Haiti, this Haiti trip starts in February. So it's hard to believe that after about eight or nine months that here we are in a couple weeks. We have seven team members that are going to be joining us in Haiti this year. Uh, we leave on September 29th, and um, I just want to introduce, well, you know, Norvin Karen, Mary Bristow, Rhonda Gentozzi, um, Jackie Gardner, and Debbie and J.R. Keppel are going with us this year. Um, we've been planning several activities this year, and the activities include, um, we plan to share the salvation message with students in several schools. We hope to at least go to one or two schools every day. Uh, we'll be using the wordless book as our tool, and doing activities and songs with the children. Um, so that's one thing. We're organizing and planning a major painting project, and uh, we'll be painting at one of the schools that desperately needs paint and um, supplies and benches. School, we're also gonna be building some school benches and desks there as well. 
Um, uh, we will also be teaching, there's a couple of nurses going, and again this year we'll be teaching um, health and hygiene classes to um, students in the schools. And these classes are very important. Um, I get material and the teaching and the education from an organization called Days for Girls. And this organization promotes, um, let me just read this. These classes were developed by Days for Girls with the goal of reducing the stigma and shame associated with a woman's menstrual cycle and is vital to women's and girls reaching their full potential. So hoping to uh, be able to do that to about 300 students um, in the schools. Uh, Norb plans to teach a Bible seminar at a countryside church as he has done the past uh, several years. And, and the team will also plan to do a VBS there. So lots of activities happening. Yeah, lots happening. Lots going on. That's great. That's great. Um, Norb, just tell us, I mean, obviously we can be praying for all those things. Uh, I guess the thing I'd like to close with is just, uh, have you seen God working? And uh, Well, it, it kind of, I'm always praying about the topic for the seminar. You know, Lord, help me know what to say and what to talk about. And talk to Pastor Feniel a little bit about that too. And Kind of started last fall when the Ken Taylor introduced us to, to Jude Augustama and his family that lives here in Grimes. They're Haitians, and Jude is in Haiti now. He's transferring back to live in Haiti and work there in the school, school administration. So we had Jude over for a dinner, got to know him, and then he's talking about that he found uh, water on his well, I mean water on his property, and he dug a you know, dug a well, found the water 200 feet below the surface. And then he's saying, well, we need a water tower. We need, you know, to hold the water somehow. And um, 26 years of my life I spent working for a water tower company, <laughs> designing, helping build water towers. So turns out that Ken Taylor and I designed a water tower. And Jude went back in April and got his team together, and he built the water tower. And it's <laughs> functioning right now. They have water at the school. We're excited to go see it. Amen. And so, yeah, just praying about the topic again, and I know how important water is to Haitians. They, they need water desperately, and I know what, you know, how important Jesus is to me, and we just put the two together, water and Jesus, and thinking about John chapter 4, Jesus is the living water, so the topic for the seminar is going to be Jesus is the living water uh, based on John chapter 4. So appreciate your prayers for us about that. And may the Lord bless and help us with that. And then we're going to spend, Jr. and Deb and Karen and I are going to spend an extra week in Haiti with Jude and his ministry doing painting and building benches and um, just teaching. Yeah. Karen's going to do some teaching, and so, yeah, that's what we're doing. So, appreciate right. your prayers. Praise God. Praise God. Also, be praying for Norb. He's going to be preaching two Sundays when he's there, okay? So, he's going to be preaching two Sundays, and uh, I think you're, you, you haven't got that figured out yet, or you're waiting that's for the Lord. Lord he needs God's, <laughs> needs God's guidance as to what he's going to be preaching on, but uh, uh, so... Um, so if you want, you asked about prayer, oh, prayer for us. So uh, in your bulletins is a, just kind of a general um, prayer for the team. But then also each member that's going this year, we've um, made prayer cards. And so each member has prayer cards. And um, you have yours, right? Everybody has their prayer cards. And so if, you, if there's someone that you want to be praying for while they're in Haiti this year, please ask them to see a prayer card. You can take it and put it in your Bible and be praying for us every day. We need your prayers desperately for health, for safety. 
um, for interaction, for just so many things. So prayer support is just really appreciated. Thank you so okay. much. Okay, I'm gonna do that right now. So you guys, whoa, whoa, you just stay right here. You just stay right here. <laughs> let me let me pray with you guys, Father. Uh, thank you so much for uh, the team that's headed to Haiti, for Norb and Karen, and for Ryan, who've been instrumental in coordinating and planning and doing so much. And I pray for each of them that they'd be filled with your spirit and led by your grace. We pray that you would be preparing ahead of time right now the interactions that they'll be having with the specific people that you know need to hear. We pray that you'd prepare hearts to hear and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would give the team a spirit of unity and a bond of peace. We pray for their physical safety and their protection, for your spirit's work in each of their lives to grow them in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and to shine the love of Christ so that those who see them will see the love of Christ. By this will all men know that you are my disciples, by the love that you have one for another. And so I pray, committing them to you, praying for Brother Norb as he prepares to preach and teach, and the gals as they uh, do their teaching, as they work on painting and in building, and just in their interactions, Lord, that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks. You bet. You bet. And if you are in Sunday school, you are uh, free to leave at this time, okay? So you guys can make your way to the back, and that's uh, and get ready to go. I would like to pray as we prepare to study God's Word. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your grace and your mercy and for leading this team to Haiti. We pray uh, that you would open their hearts and minds and the people there to the truths of the Word. We pray that you'd open our hearts and minds to the truths of your Word. As we continue to worship you, our holy God, I pray that your Word would penetrate our lives that you would accomplish your purposes in and through each one of us for your glory and for the advancement of your kingdom, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. It won't be long until there'll be a bunch of people running around uh, out in the fields in Iowa trying to, well, they'll be taking aim at the little ringneck pheasants. Uh, only not little ones, but they'll be taking aim at these, uh, at these birds that are flying around and trying to shoot them down. And as I was thinking about that, my mind went to our text for this morning because on Jesus' second day in the temple, which we're in Matthew 21, where Jesus is entering the temple for the second day, on the second day of Jesus being in the temple, he took aim. He took aim at religious hypocrisy. He took aim at the, uh, these people who are pretenders and attempted to kind of eradicate worthless worship and to encourage true worship of him, true belief. Uh, the previous day, he had cleared the temple, had gone in there and ransacked the place, and then he had cured some of the disabled people. And that didn't put him in too good a standing with the religious elite who were in the temple. In fact, it raised the animosity uh, towards this guy who claimed to be a prophet of God, who really came from out of nowhere. And so they were a little bit upset with him. And with the tensions running high, Jesus didn't back down. He didn't run away from the, the hostility and the conflict. And so what he did was he didn't retreat from his mission. He was there to confront their sterile, lifeless, and empty worship. And he said, no, you don't need religion. You need a relationship with God through faith in me. You don't need ritual. 
What you really need is true righteousness, which comes through repentance and faith in Christ. And these religious leaders ask him a question. And that question became the pivot point in which Jesus launched into his assault, if you will. (laughs) He was not on the passive side now. He was charging ahead to assault their religious hypocrisy. And it prompted him to challenge their unbelief, the unbelief of their pretense. They were pretenders. And so if you would join me in Matthew chapter 21, we're going to look at two steps that Jesus took to condemn religious hypocrisy and commend a true and genuine faith in him that we see in Matthew 21, beginning with verse 23 and going through verse 32. And I'm going to read the text and then we'll go get started. So if you have your Bible or your device, whatever you want to pull it up on your app or whatever, reach under the seat in front of you, there should be a Bible. I'm in Matthew chapter 21, beginning with verse 23. And when he had come into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? And Jesus answered and said to them, I'll ask you one thing too, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from from men? And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for they all hold John to be a prophet. And answering Jesus, they said, We don't know. And he also said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But what do you think? Jesus continues. That's not in the Bible, but he does in verse 28. A man had two sons, and he came to the first son. Now, I'm going to make a stop here. What I'm reading is the New American Standard Version from about 1970, okay? So it's different than what you're going to be reading in yours, just in the sense that the order of these sons is is reversed. So the ESV, uh, the updated NASV, the New King James, all that stuff, uh, they're going to have it reversed, so just hold on. It, it's, it's in the Bible. It's just out of, they're just in a different order, so we're not, we're not changing things, okay? Just so you know that. But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first, and he said, Son, go to work today in, in, in the vineyard. And he answered and said, I will, sir, and he did not. ESV says, I will not, and then he went, Okay. Verse 30, and he came to the second and said the same thing, go work in the vineyard. But he answered and said, I will not, you're reading, I will. Uh, yet he afterward regretted it and went, and you're saying, uh, he said, I will, but he didn't go. Okay. Verse 31, which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the latter, yours says, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you that tax gatherers and harlots will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax gatherers and harlots did believe him, and you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterwards so as to believe him. So the first step that Jesus took to condemn their hypocrisy and to commend true faith is found, I think, it says the the Lord, he reprimanded. 
stubborn refusal to acknowledge divine authority, his divine authority. He just flat out confronted them with their refusal to accept his divine authority. And his confrontation unfolds in three acts, if you will. Three stages, if you will. First of all, uh, we see his authority is doubted. Jesus is teaching in the temple. And they interrupt him while he's teaching. And the chief priests and the elders of the scribes, they interrupted him. Now, who are these people? The chief priests, you know, they're in charge of the temple. And then the elders, this would include... Most likely, if we looked at other passages in Matthew 21 and in Mark chapter 11, it includes the Pharisees as well as the scribes, probably also includes the Essenes and anybody else who's related in the religious uppity-up crowd. Okay, So these are the people who are confronting Jesus. The most prominent and most powerful religious figures of their day come together to fight against a common enemy. A common enemy who challenged their authority and threatened their superiority. You understand? These people are the people in power in the temple, in religion, and Jesus is calling them into question. And they said, so by what authority do you do these things? And who gave you this authority? Now what things are they talking about? What was Jesus doing? Well, it, I think it includes all that he's done up to this point, all of his ministry and all of his teaching, but predominantly and primarily in their mind is what happened yesterday. Jesus came in and he cleared the temple, ransacked it, overturned the tables. You can see pigeons flying or doves flying everywhere and, and sheep and goats going everywhere and the people scurrying about and the money and coins flying all over the temple and Jesus was there. And then he had the audacity to cure the disabled. In the temple. And in fact, he's right there now teaching in the temple. And so, uh, who gave you the right to do these things? That's the question that they have before him in the temple there. See, we're, we're, these leaders, they're supposed to be in charge of things there. It's like their house. And this nobody from Galilee is in Nazareth is in there doing it. He acted as their superior even though he didn't have their approval. Why do you do that? Where do you get this authority? Several years ago, I was coming up to the platform to, to preach, and I was coming from this side. And I came up, and I got, when I got up to the platform to preach, there was another man whom I didn't know from Adam standing on the pl platform. And he said, Pastor, I have, I have a message. I have a message to bring to your congregation. And I looked at him. And uh, the church had invested me with the authority to oversee the services of the church. He had none of that authority. And so I politely denied his request. I said, if people want to listen to what you have to say, they can stay around afterwards and listen. But you have no authority to speak to the congregation uh, at this point in time. Well, Jesus was that guy in the temple with the religious leaders and the priests and the elders of the thing. And this was what he was doing there. The supernatural authority of Jesus really is indisputable. Here's a guy who had cured all kinds of diseases. 
He had cast out demons. He had made the blind to see. Jesus had raised people from the dead. And they're going, by what authority are you doing these things? They were no better than the guys that we looked at in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, because they were convinced that, that Jesus was doing these things. They arrogantly assumed and they piously preferred to hold on to their conviction that Jesus did these things and what he was doing was not divine but demonic. Matthew chapter 12, verse 34. He casts out demons by his father, the father of the demons, by Beelzebul. That's, they're, they're of that vein. They weren't really seeking information when they asked that question. By what authority do you do these things? They were making an accusation against the Son of God. They were making an accusation. Self-righteous hypocrites, and not just them, but all people who are openly rebellious, reject the true authority of Jesus, of His ministry and His message. And they place their own authority above His. I'm going to say that again. Self-righteous hypocrites... And the openly rebellious reject the authority of Jesus' ministry and his message. Instead, usurping their own authority as superior to his. Now think about this. Just recently, Harvard University. Harvard University was started way back, way back, a long time ago, as a, a university to train young ministers in the gospel. To preach the gospel. Just recently, they have appointed an avowed atheist as their chaplain. Denying biblical authority with self-reliant authority, they do that. All across our country and around the world, churches are denying the authority of Scripture and embracing critical race theory. It's happening. All across the country. Any false, all false religions and all misrepresentations of Christianity have this in common. They deny the authority of God, of Christ, and God's word. And they do so primarily by promoting a, a works system of salvation. And they proclaim a, a message about Jesus that, in which he is like somehow diminished. A deficient view of Jesus. You look at any heresy, anything, weigh it by this. What do they say about the authority and the inerrancy of the Word of God? What do they teach about Jesus and salvation? Is it through what you do or what God has done for us in Christ? And then they would proclaim that Jesus is somehow, he's a good prophet. He's a, he's a mighty prophet. He's a, he's a good teacher. Yeah, he's all that, but he's the Son of God, the Savior of the world. They come together and they deny the absolute authority of Christ and his Word. Like the religionists here. Anything but accepting that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's a false teaching. That's a false teaching. Second stage, the second act, is we see his authority defended. In, verses 20, in verse 24 he says, And Jesus answered and said to them, I will ask you one thing. Don't you just love that? Like They're, they're in there. It's their house. Uh, hey, Jesus, yeah, by, by what authority are you doing this? Oh yeah, well, I want to ask you a question. Jesus actually usurps his authority by asking them a question and saying, I'm only going to answer it if you answer my question. <laughs> I'm thinking, what? Took chutzpah? You know, that's, uh, that's like, you know, he's, he's there. And it, they think it's his house, their house, but it's not their house. And he, he usurps his authority by making their answer to his question contingent upon their answer to his question. The baptism of John, from what source was it? From heaven or from men? 
See, John came, came preaching. He came preaching a message of repentance. This is Matthew chapter 3. We've already gone over it, but in Matthew chapter 3. And he, he was telling people to believe in him who was coming after him. That's John was telling people to believe in the one who's coming after him. That's Acts chapter 19, verse 4. And we see this in Matthew chapter 3, verse 3. And I think we have that one up on the screen. Yeah, for, uh, yeah. So he's saying, I'm the one who's coming, announcing, prepare the way of the Lord. They had the answer to their question. They knew by what authority Jesus had done these things. They knew by what authority John spoke. So, but Jesus said. And so he says, John's baptism, is his baptism, is it from heaven or from men? I think when he says his baptism, he's referring to all of John's prophetic ministry. Okay? Portrayed most graphically when John baptized people. And he baptized people as they were confessing their sins. Okay? They were confessing their sins and visibly declaring that they were repenting of their sins and that they were identifying themselves with all other believers who were waiting for the Messiah that John was proclaiming would come. So then when it says the baptism of John, he's not just talking about when he got, people got wet. He's talking about their confessing sins, repenting, and they're waiting for the coming of, of the Messiah. Yesterday, uh, all across Iowa, people were dressed up in their you know, their, their gear, okay? Uh, Cyclone fans and Hawkeye fans were identifying themselves as loyalty to one team or the other. In the same way, the baptism of John was identifying those who were loyal to the idea that they were repenting of sins and that the Messiah was coming and they believed that he was coming. John had already answered the question of where his authority was coming from. If you looked at Matthew chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, you can see it on the screen. I think we have that one, yeah. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. That's who John was proclaiming. If John's ministry and message was from heaven, as a message about Jesus was from heaven, then Christ would be able to rightly say what they rationalized that he would say. Why didn't you believe him? I mean, if it's from heaven, then you're the religious leaders. Why don't you believe that what he said? And then by extension, why don't you believe what he said about the one who's coming after him, who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? You guys know very well where John's ministry came from. And you know that if his ministry came from heaven, then his ministry proclaiming me is divine, and my ministry and message is also divine. It would have exposed, and he did expose their, their hard heart. Yeah, he exposed it. To admit heavenly source for John's ministry would expose their stubborn unbelief and force them to admit that Jesus is the Messiah. And they weren't going there. But they also had a problem. Because if they said it was from men, then they'd be in hot water with the entire group of people who believed that John was a prophet. And they couldn't risk that either. Okay, We fear the multitude for they all hold John to be a prophet. 
The greatest fear, I think, in the heart of a religious hypocrite is the fear of men which causes them to save face rather than the fear of God which causes us to seek faith in Christ. You hypocrite? You're more worried about men and saving face in front of people than you are about fearing God and seeking what it means to know Christ as Lord and Savior. And then finally we see uh, his authority denied. So they said, we don't know. They knew, but they weren't going to admit what they knew. We, we don't know. And I believe their reply stemmed from rebellion, not confusion. They weren't really confused. They just were rejecting it. And it masked their true conviction that they believed that Jesus' authority came from Satan, not from God. Sadly, they feared the rejection of men more than they feared the wrath of God. And so here's where I come to us. What about you? Do you fear men more than the wrath of God? Do unbelief and the fear of men move you like it did them to be content and comfortable in neither outright rebellion or just religious activity that really masks a lack of spiritual faith? rather than believing in true righteousness that comes through repentance and faith. And I want, to, I want to talk particularly to those who grew up in the church. And a lot of you young people, you come with your parents and you hear this message all the time, but what is it to you? Is this real or is it just, well, I go to church, you know, I have to do my thing. And some of us have grown up and some of us have been growing up to church all of our lives. But these are the religious people. They had the religion down. They didn't have a relationship with God down at all. Don't reject Christ. This is what Jesus is saying. Don't play church and think that you're okay. The Bible doesn't say you're okay. Jesus doesn't say we're okay if we play church. He says we're okay if we trust him. And so what's Jesus say? Okay, you want to be silent? I'll be silent. We don't know, neither will I tell you. You're not going to get any more light. In fact, Jesus turns up the heat on their unbelief. Which leads to the second way that Jesus confronts hypocrisy and commends true faith. The Lord reproves our stubborn refusal to act with spiritual sincerity. What we read next is the first of three parables that serve this purpose of depicting and denouncing religious pretense, pretenders, and unbelief. Okay? So there's two ways this first parable, verses 28 through 32, shows Christ's condemnation of this pretense and unbelief. First of all, he, he reveals it. He just gets it out there. He starts to respond to their unbelief by telling a parable that nails them to the wall. The parable reveals it. What do you think? I love Jesus. He says, well, okay, what do you guys think? He's inviting them in to get their input. So, so what do you think? And then he tells this parable. He invites their opinion. The father in the parable represents God. Okay? The same request is given to both sons. Okay, Two sons. Go, will you go work in the vineyard? Go, son, go work 
in the vineyard. And in the parable, it basically means it's an invitation for them to repent of their sins and to put their faith in Jesus and come into the kingdom. That's what it means to go work in the vineyard. Okay? And that's my understanding of it in the parable. And thereby they enter. Now the sons represent two groups of people and their response to the gospel. Okay? So I'll try to tease it out in the order in which you read it. Okay? So here's the first son, which I call the faithful son. The faithful son represents true believers, okay? Okay, initially rebellious, but ultimately obedient. Initially rebellious, but ultimately they, they, they see the error of their way and they obey. And then there's the fickle son. This is in verse 30. He says, I will serve, and he doesn't go, okay? The thing, the thing is, when you say, I will... It's kind of like there's this, this verbal consent, but it seems that because he didn't go, he really didn't mean it. It's like kind of like kids, you know, you tell your child, okay, you got to clean your room uh, before you spend time with before you spend time with your friends or before you get on your, your social media. And they say, okay, I will. I'm not. I've had over the years many, many people. And usually these people volunteer this. Say, oh yeah, you know, Pastor, I'm going to come. I'm going to come visit your church. I'm going to come. I'll, I'll be there on Sunday. And I'm telling you, almost without exception, none of them came. So if somebody walks up to me and they say, "Oh yeah, I'm going to come visit you," I'm just pretty much going, "Okay, not happening." I'm not saying everybody, but a vast majority. So the intent is really not to come. It's just a, it's a smokescreen, and that's what it was here. It was a smokescreen. Which of the two did the will of the Father? Which of the two actually went to the vineyard? Which of the two actually repented and believed in Christ and actually came into the kingdom? Well, the first, of course, right? The, the first. Their answer. Now, notice they're answering the question. So intellectually, they understand that heartfelt action is far more important than verbal declaration. They're admitting their own hypocrisy. They know it's more important to do rather than to say. But they misunderstand that personally doing the Father's will is to repent and put their faith in Christ as Lord and Savior, not being religious. So I ask you and all of us, do we understand that too? What's more important is not what we say, it's what we do. Now, if what we say and what we do are congruent, then that's good. They, they failed in that, that account. The answer exposes their unbelief. So, secondly, the parable rebukes our religious pretense. It doesn't just reveal it. He goes on to rebuke it. And Jesus unpacks the parable. Truly I say to you, and he's saying to them, the tax gatherers and the harlots will get into the kingdom of God before you. Ouch! I mean, the most, if you read through the Gospels, you can see how the religious leaders react to Jesus spending time with the tax gatherers and the immoral people. They were convinced that these people were beyond the pale. They were outside of the reach of God's mercy, the religious leaders did. And so now for Jesus to say, well, those people are getting in way before you guys. It's like, oh, he couldn't have insulted them with any greater insult. 
Okay, no more stinging reproof. See, the tax gatherers were traitors. And the harlots were the most immoral people, the worst of sinners, the despicable. And this is the point. The despicable people of the world who repent would get into the kingdom of God and the most religious people who reject not. The most despicable who repent and come to Christ are in. And the most religious and upstanding and surfacely appearing righteous people, they don't get in. MacArthur puts it this way, claims to religion do not qualify a person to enter the kingdom. And even gross sin, when repented of, will not keep a person out. Why not? Verse 32, notice the word for. Jesus is explaining it. He's giving the reason. For John came to you in the way of righteousness. John came to you in the way of righteousness. Wow. You see, now Jesus is answering their question. The question they didn't answer, which was, what's the source of John's authority? What's what's the source of his baptism? Heaven or from men? What What does Jesus say? He came to you in the way of righteousness. It's a reference, I think, uh, if we would look at it in Matthew chapter, um, Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 and 15. It's when Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him, but John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and yet you are coming to me. But Jesus answered and said to him, Allow it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. John's baptism was a fulfillment of all righteousness. Somehow, in the mysterious mind and the ways of God, it was necessary for God, the Son, to be baptized by John to fulfill God's purposes and in so doing to confirm the ministry and message of both John and Jesus as from heaven. It was from heaven. John's baptism was from heaven. And Jesus' authority is divine. And then Jesus stung him again. Well, he came in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. You rejected him. You did not believe him. Like the second son in the parable, the religious leaders gave the outward profession of following God, but they were not surrendered to the Savior. Oh, reminiscent of what we looked at last week, right? They had the foliage of religion, but they didn't have the fruit of religion. They were it. I can't help but think that uh, some of the people that we trained in Afghanistan, the local Afghanis, I can't help but think that some of them uh, who claimed to be a legion aligned with the Afghan resistance when the Taliban came in kind of decided, no, it's really not worth it. I can't prove it, but I just kind of think that's probably true. Uh, well, these guys, they, they wanted out. You know, they didn't, they didn't want it. The leaders who were posers, and they clung to their unbelief rather than repent of their sins and trust in Christ. In contrast, the tax gatherers and <clears throat> the, the harlots did believe, like the first son, initially rebellious, but eventually they, they, they repented. They gave way to sincere repentance and their obedience to the work of God. They turned from their sin and they trusted in Christ because they knew that they needed a Savior. 
They knew that they needed a Savior. And Jesus further criticizes the religious leaders for their unbelief because he says, and you, after you saw the worst of sinners repent and trust in me, refused to believe. How could you do this? Did not even feel remorse. They heard John's message, the worst of sinners. They heard the message, and then they, re- they understood and accepted Jesus. They repented and believed, and these guys watched it, and they were unmoved. They didn't care. They remained calloused in their sin and refused to repent and trust in Jesus. See, think about this. They had been exposed to the prophet of God, John. His ministry and message, they had been exposed to the ministry and message of the Messiah, the Son of God, and still wasn't enough. Wasn't enough. They refused to repent and believe in Jesus. And so I just want to say this morning, you've been exposed to the ministry and the message of John and of Jesus. And so I, I think every... We should, we should reflect. Those who say, well, I, I'm still rebellious or I'm still just, I'm good with being religious. You know? What does Jesus have to say? He alerts us to the danger of masking our rebellion. That's rooted in the rejection of his authority by thinking that we're okay if we just do religion. No. That's, that's a ticket to condemnation. It's a ticket to hell. And, and the Lord doesn't want that for us. If you, like the second son, do not do the will of the Father, which is to humbly repent and to trust in Christ as your Savior, you won't get into the kingdom. That's what Jesus said. I'm, I'm just repeating what Jesus said. Church attendance, baptism, serving in the church, giving money to the church, good things. But they they can reflect our, our involvement and participation in the kingdom, but they can never bring us into the kingdom. Okay? They can be examples that we have been installed in the kingdom, but they're never the ticket into the kingdom. And never the way into the king whisper, repent and believe. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Period. It's not whoever was baptized, not whoever was catechized, not whoever was confirmed, not whoever gave money, not whoever was a member. All good things, but that's not how it works. That's the fruit, that's the, the measure, not the means. Okay, of entering into the kingdom of God. And so I just invite you, if you're listening online or here this morning and you've never really turned from your sin and trusted in Christ as your Savior, that's my invitation to you. Don't trust in your religion. Don't trust in the fact that you've come to church. Don't trust in the fact that your parents brought you to church. Don't trust in the fact that you're a quote-unquote good person or you do all the right stuff. Trust in Christ. And Jesus has come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's that's an invitation to salvation. And that's what Jesus wants for you. Trust Christ today and delight in his redeeming grace. Think about this. Think about this. This is kind of interesting to me. Our gracious God opens wide the gates into his kingdom to the worst of sinners who repents. And he closes it shut 
to the most righteous who reject him. We're one of two. Well, we could just be outwardly rebellious. Okay, so there's three. If we're outwardly rebellious and reject it, or if we're religious and reject it, but then if we're rebels and we receive it, receive Christ. And if you're here this morning and you, you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you have accepted Christ, what an incentive to share the gospel with a lost and dying world because our God is mighty to save. The worst of sin, if repented of, will not keep us out of the kingdom. That's good news. Who doesn't need that news? And some of those people are our family. I mean, all of us, if we know Jesus, are, are those people. We're the worst of sinners, as Paul says. Uh, you know, I, I'm, the worst, I'm the worst of sinners. And it inspires us to give thanks to God. Thanks be to God for his victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I like Psalm 118. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. He rescued me. He rescued me. I don't deserve it, but he rescued me, so I give him thanks. And it also causes, you know, because every one of us who trusts Christ is gloriously saved from the wickedness of our heart. Gloriously saved. Undeservedly saved. Absolutely nothing I can claim before the throne of God. Oh, God, I am, you know, you got a really good deal. No. Who am I? Who am I that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain. So I give thanks. I'm just a poor sinner saved by grace inviting you to enjoy the glorious riches of his kingdom because you don't deserve it any more than I do. And then we can trust him. We can trust this God who has his supreme authority, believing that he'll use it for our good and for his glory. No matter what's happening, he's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. We submit fully without reservation to a good and glorious and gracious God. In our lives. And then we also realize that, hey, uh, genuine faith alone, which saves, is evidenced by works. It's not, I don't just say I'm a believer, because as James said, faith without works is dead. James chapter 2, verse 18. Maybe that's it. Uh, well, it doesn't matter, but James said it. You can go to James 2. Faith without works is dead, okay? It, it doesn't matter. Notice in verse 32, he says, believe, believe, believe. Three times he talks about belief, saving faith. I like what O'Donnell has in his commentary. To Jesus, verbal faith is not saving faith. A doing faith is saving faith. We evidence our salvation because we do what we say, all right? And that's, that's the lesson. So think about this. Saving faith is the trust in Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Through his death and his burial and his resurrection, he took away the sins of the world. And each time we gather as a body and we take the bread and the cup as symbols of his body broken and, and his blood shed, we proclaim that sacrifice Till he comes. We, we are declaring to the world that Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again to provide salvation to all who believe. 
that you could enter the kingdom of God. It's an invitation for those who don't know Christ when we say communion. It's an invitation to receive Christ as your Savior and take the bread and the cup as a, as a declaration that, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be in this kingdom. And it's a time for inspiration for those of us who know Jesus. We just take time and we say, reflect and say, Lord, thank you for saving me from my sin. And we say, I'm going to trust you each day to guide me with your authority for my good and your glory. And then we take action. We let our faith work itself out in love. And so as we close the service, the praise team is going to come and they're going to sing a song. And so if you don't know Jesus, I invite you to Turn from your sin and tell God you're a sinner and you want to trust in this Jesus who died on your behalf so you'd be saved. And then if you know Christ, just take some time to reflect and to repent of any known sin. Just confess it before God, get your heart right, and then take the elements as, as God would lead you to do that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Jesus and your Son who came with your authority offering salvation. And I pray that each of us who are listening here this morning would either now for the very first time, turn from our sins, repent, and trust Christ who died for us. Or else testify in our own hearts through our own confession, uh, repentance, and uh, of, of, of known sin in our lives. Not that we'd be saved through this repentance, but that we would be further sanctified and devoted to you. And that we would take some time to give you praise and thanksgiving for what you've done as we take these elements. We pray in Jesus' name.